there is this cumulative effect of living outside of Christ where your sin keeps getting more and more and more against your name because each and every day you are choosing the same path and it is a path that is completely opposite to the direction of God's will. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part one of By Grace Through Faith, a seven-part series from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor Paul's text is the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. As we begin this series on a critical part of the Ephesians letter, we've asked Pastor Paul to join us in person. So, Pastor, as we begin this study through Ephesians chapter 2, there seems to be a distinct mood change from chapter 1. Yeah, I agree with that, Matt. As we move chapters, we note how the Apostle has just finished unpacking all of the huge blessings that come to the Ephesians through Christ. Then he begins chapter 2 with the phrase, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, the Ephesians didn't have problems doctrinally or morally, but they did have a big challenge ahead of them. Both Jew and Gentile, now Christians, were expected to worship and fellowship together. Previously, this would have been unthinkable in that culture. Thus, they had to be reminded from where they had come, spiritual lifelessness. They had been brought from living death to eternal life. Thanks, Pastor Paul. Very important point to make as we see multicultural congregations are all around us. Here now is part one in our new series, By Grace Through Faith. If you've been following in this series, you'll know that in Ephesians chapter one, Paul has explained to us that we are blessed and that we should be blessers. We are richly blessed in Christ. Heaven has emptied its storehouses of blessing on our lives. Anyone in Christ has every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There is nothing left for God to give. He has given it freely to us all in Christ. And the appropriate response that Paul shows us is that we are to bless God. We are to live lives of worship and praise and adoration to God, our Father, for the way in which he has blessed us. You'll also know that as Paul prays for the Ephesians, he makes clear that the primary domain, the primary sphere, the primary area in which this blessing is most fully realized in our lives And the primary domain, sphere, area in which our blessing of God is most fully actualized is the church. As Paul prays in response to his opening eulogy, he mirrors the truths that he gives us there, but he starts to introduce more explicitly and more fully the doctrine of the church. And one thing that he makes plain to the Ephesian Christians and in turn to us 
is that if you want to know in all of its fullness this blessing that we have received in Christ, and if you desire to live your lives in a way that you are truly blessing your Father in heaven, then you locate yourself in the local church. You don't find yourself apart from it. You don't choose to neglect the gathering of the saints. You don't prefer other things. You make a wise choice to be all about the local church because that is where your blessing is most fully known and your response to God is most fully lived out. That's chapter one in a nutshell. And now we turn the corner into chapter two. And Paul wants to, at this point, start to discuss some specifics. In particular, in chapter two, Paul is concerned to speak about the relationship between the Jew and the Gentile. In verse 11 through 22, he'll be dealing in high detail the reality of the Jews worshipping alongside Gentiles. If you cast your mind all the way back to the book of Acts, where we began our series, you may remember that in the book of Acts, in chapters 17, 18, 19, when Ephesus is in view, we realize that Paul's ministry there was to both Jews and Gentiles, to the church in Ephesus was made up of both. Certainly, the primary theological backdrop in Ephesus was a Gentile one, but that's not to say there weren't synagogues in that city. And so, as Paul went to the synagogue, as was his custom, and he preached the gospel to the Jew first, and then he preached to the Gentile, God gave him a ministry to both in Ephesus. Both Jews and Gentiles had received the saving gospel and had come into the church in Ephesus. In that sense, the backdrop is not all that different from many other New Testament epistles where there are many congregations in the first century having to work through the issue of worshipping with someone beside them who is of a different worldview, a completely different way of life, at least formally. The Jew and the Gentile were essentially aliens to one another in the first century, and now they find themselves siblings, brothers and sisters in Christ, gathering around the communion table together, singing songs of praise together, praying together and for one another. How are they to do this? And what Paul wants to stress to them is that they are all of them in union with Christ. There is no distinction. Paul will get there towards the end of chapter 2. He will get to make the point that Jew or Gentile, you are one with Christ and you ought to be one with each other. Verse 18 of this chapter, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You are no longer strangers and aliens speaking to the Gentiles there, but rather Jesus came, verse 17, preaching peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Jew and Gentile alike have received a common salvation. You're no different. Regardless of your background, regardless of your ethnicity, it really doesn't matter. You are unified by one common gospel. That's where Paul's headed in this chapter. It is a chapter that will exhort them toward unity. 
In order to get to making that point, Paul has to first lay some groundwork. He has to first lay a theological foundation so as to be able to make that argument. And the theological foundation that Paul feels burdened to make is to point to our common lifelessness apart from Christ. Paul introduces his argument by stating the truth, chapter 2, verse 1, you all were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Whether you are a Jew, whether you are a Gentile, whether you are slave or free, man or woman, old or young, we all share out with Christ a lifelessness in our sins. That is Paul's point as he opens up this argument, and that is what we'll think through this evening. Verse 1 is perhaps a well-known verse to you. It's one certainly that I find myself talking about often to remind people of the state of the sinner apart from the saving work of the Lord Jesus, namely that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We mentioned it even this morning. We didn't have a slight pulse. We didn't have a weak pulse, but it was there somewhere. We didn't have an inclination towards the things of God. We didn't have thoughts of him, but the language is as plain as it ought to be. We were spiritually lifeless apart from Christ. There was nothing in us of any spiritual value. There was nothing in us of any spiritual life. We were dead Utterly lifeless in, Paul says, trespasses and sins. Those two terms are near synonyms. We shouldn't labor too hard to separate them, apart from simply noticing that they do show us two sides of the same coin. The trespass has it the idea of going too far, and the sin has the idea of not quite making it. And so by combining the two, Paul gives us a very robust and fully developed notion of our failings. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were emphatically dead. There was no life within us. And just to be clear, when we read of that idea, trespasses and sins, it is not the case that there was a known standard. God has made his will clear. It is in the hearts of Men and, and if we were an archer with a bow, pulling back the bow so as to shoot the arrow at the target, it is not the case that apart from Christ, we shoot that arrow and it just happens to miss the bullseye. We can sometimes think about our sin like that. Theologically, the reality is this. The target has been made no. The standard has been clearly set forth. It is in the hearts of men. We are the archer with the bow and the arrow. And seeing the target, we willfully turn around and shoot in the opposite direction. It is not the case that we were trying to hit the spot and we happen to miss. And for that reason, God declares us guilty. That is not the case of being out of Christ. 
but rather the reality is that we were rebels, enemies of God, knowing the target, knowing the standard. We were willfully turning away and shooting purposefully in the opposite direction. We were rebellious against God's will. And notice, Paul hasn't yet finished the phrase. He goes on to say, in which you once walked. So I love now pondering the picture. Paul's opening verse of chapter 2 is of dead people walking. Dead people choosing to progress in their sin. Lifeless sinners choosing to keep going on in their rebellion. There is this cumulative effect of living outside of Christ where your sin keeps getting more and more and more against your name because each and every day you are choosing the same path and it is a path that is completely opposite to the direction of God's will. You were not able to change your direction and neither did you want to. That is the common ground that each and every person on this planet shares, save the Lord Jesus. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked. If there had been any resistance to that teaching in the church in Ephesus, if anybody in the congregation had perhaps maybe come up to the preacher after the sermon and said, I just have one question. Paul anticipates. Paul anticipates such objections. He fends off the questions before they come because what he then does in the next few verses is to give three evidences of our dead, lifeless state. He gives us Three evidences that show us just how dead we really were, just how entrenched in our trespasses and sins we really were, just how common our state was apart from the grace of the gospel. So I want to work through them this evening, the three evidences of our dead, lifeless state before Christ saved us, beginning with our alliances. One way in which we know that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, choosing to walk in them, was because of our alliances. Paul says, you were following the course of this world. In Genesis chapter 3, sin entered into God's creation. When sin entered into God's creation, it was not restricted to Adam and Eve alone. They were the guilty party. They caused the transgression. They ran headlong towards their particular sin. And as sin then entered into the created order, it wasn't restricted to them alone, but rather the entire cosmos came crashing down. Adam stood as the head of God's created order. God had appointed him. As the head of the created order, he was God's representative. And thus, as God's chosen representative failed, the entire cosmos came crashing down. Which means, just by way of example, the stars do not shine in the evening sky tonight as they once did in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. 
The most glorious sunset that you could ever find on planet Earth is but a faded sepia image of the sunsets that were known in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The most spectacular scene that you could ever find on planet Earth today is a jaded image compared to what creation knew prior to the fall. When sin entered, it entered into the human race and it pulled the whole cosmos down such that thereafter all the created order ever knew was the reality of sin abiding with it. Sin everywhere you looked. Sin tainted everything. As Adam and Eve had children and they had children and they had children. All that creation ever knew was sinners thereafter. We see Cain murdering his brother. God expelled Adam and Eve out of the garden. He then expels Cain further east and gives him the instruction to be a wanderer and a sojourner. And Cain defies that commandment and settles. He dwells and he builds a city in defiance to God's command to be a wanderer. And then that first city comes together, and it is a city that is marked by sin. And thereafter, every expression of society and civilization for the history of mankind has been one that is defined by our sin. By God's grace, much good has been accomplished through many lives, but make no mistake, every single person born thereafter, with the exception of the Lord Jesus Christ, has been a sinner. And that works itself out individually and corporately. Society's sin, civilization's sin, organization's sin. There is a corporate manifestation of sin after Adam transgressed. And what Paul says is that evidence that you were dead in your trespasses and sins is found in the fact that you chose not to go in a contrary direction. You walked with the course of this world. You chose to endorse the things that a sinful world endorsed. You chose to embrace that which a sin-filled world embraced. You chose to celebrate all that which a sin-filled world celebrates. Everything that was endorsed and embraced and celebrated by a sinful world was just as much your own endorsement, your own embracement, your own celebration. The very fact that you did not choose to chart a different path, but rather go along with the course of this world is testimony to the fact that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And of course, going along with Paul's language, the reality is you could not have done otherwise. You were utterly dead. And so you were simply carried along according to your desires, your will, your choice. You carried along with the course of this world. You can see, by way of implication, when you consider these truths, just how vitally important it is for a Christian to strive to live a holy life. When you consider the realities of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, 
you start to see how great a responsibility it is for Christians to strive for holiness. God makes plain that we are to live a holy life, not in order to gain his acceptance. You already have it fully in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But you live out a holy life. As he has saved you, he then places a responsibility on you to live a holy life so as to mark yourself out as different from the world. You could not have done otherwise before he saved you, but now you can. God has given you a new heart. He has given you both a desire and an ability to obey him. And so his call for holiness in your life is no small responsibility. Do not, as a Christian, buy into this laissez-faire way of living. God's got me covered. Jesus has paid for my sin. I just don't need to worry about my obedience because it's all going to work out fine in the end. Jesus has paid for your sin, but he paid a great price, and he wants you to look different from the world. He wants to make manifest his glory through your life. And the way God puts his glory on display in your life is primarily through your holy living. The word holiness means to set apart, to set apart, to be distinct. Don't boil down holiness to just a few areas of your life, but rather allow it to encompass all of your life. Strive to consider how it is you are living out a holy life in the workplace, in the home, amongst family and friends. Wherever you go, you should be living a distinct life. Before you were saved, you could not. Now you desire to and are able. And it is a serious call that God places on your life to be holy as he is holy. The evidence that you were not of his was that you weren't holy, that you followed the course of this world. Second evidence that we were dead in our trespasses and sins is by way of our authority, our alliances, and secondly, our authority. Paul goes on, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Back in Genesis 3, when Adam took of the fruit, of course, you know, he did so at the bidding of the serpent. Satan had come into the garden. He'd come in in the form of a serpent, the great deceiver. He had twisted God's word. He had prompted Eve to do likewise. In that moment, Adam and Eve were more faithful image bearers of Satan than they were of God. They were established as representatives of God. They were there to represent his will as Satan diverted their thoughts and led them to think along another path. They were better representing him than they were God. They were image bearers, as it were, of Satan in that moment. And they took of the fruit and they trespassed and they bore the consequences. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. If you listen to the news, you hear a lot about people trying to find what we call common ground. Just what do we have in common with each other? We think about that sometimes when we're in conflict with someone else. 
In this first part of By Grace Through Faith, Pastor Paul Twist has shown what the Bible says unites us all. Christians have come from the dead in sin group, rebelling against God, to the light of Christ. If you're not there yet, do you want to be? Tune in tomorrow. It's both easier and more difficult than you may think. If you'd like to learn more about turning your life in the right direction, from death to life, come to our website, TimelessTruthToday.org, TimelessTruthToday.org. Select Broadcast. There you'll find our free audio archive, an abundance of teaching to help you. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you're in the area this weekend and not part of a local church, come worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. The church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Tomorrow, we continue in our new series with part two of By Grace Through Faith. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.